Hey, we have been in this series, and I'm excited about what we have got to, to take a look at today and, and really just step into an experience, an encounter with God today. I'm really excited. Grab your full-page outline that's right in your brochure, and we'll get going right away. I want you to fill in a blank right on the top there. By learning the names of God, we get to know him more. That's what we've been talking about, the names of God. Do you know my name? By learning the names of God... We get to know him more. The Old Testament was originally written in the, Ang- uh, uh, the ancient, <laughs> get this out here, the ancient Hebrew language, and then later translated into English. And within the original Hebrew language, we find several different names for God, several names that he revealed himself by, several names that um, people who followed him uh, attributed to him. And we're going to be talking about a few more of those as we continue. We're about halfway in this series now. And what we've discovered is that these names reveal aspects of God's character. It basically tells us who he is and, and what he wants to do in our lives, how he's going to be active uh, in our lives. David tells us that those who know your name trust in you. And that's really been a key verse out of Psalm 9. It's been a key verse that has pushed forward this idea of this entire series, that those who would know him, this intimate um, uh, experience, know his name are those that are going to trust in him. And as we talked about last week, we really centered in last week on one name. And the reason I'm going to kind of review, of review just a little bit for us is because it's connected to the name that we're going to look at today. But last week, we discovered that God revealed himself as Yahweh. And it's common in uh, the English translations of the Bible, you'll find the word Lord in all capital letters in a passage, in a verse. And so it's really indicating this Hebrew name of Yahweh. Uh, We see it, how God revealed this name to Moses. Take a look, Exodus 34. The Lord, there it is, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses, and he called out his own name, say it with me, Yahweh. Now, just so you know, the ancient uh, uh, Hebrew text um, did not have vowels in it. And so this word, Yahweh, actually is is, um, pronounced or pronounced presented, rather, by four consonants, Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H. And so what's interesting is when um, things were being shifted, when the New Testament was being presented in Greek, if you didn't know, the New Testament was written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. When the New Testament was coming around, there was also a version of the New Testament, or I'm sorry, a version of the Old Testament that was being presented in Greek as well. And in the Greek alphabet, there are vowels, And so when they did the the writing of the Old Testament in Greek, they included some vowels. And that's really, I'm giving you way a lot of information, but that's how we got the name Yahweh. That's where we have these vowels added in so that we can pronounce this word. God revealed himself by this name on purpose. And I want you to see this. The name Yahweh reveals the God of relationship. We talked a lot about that last week. You can go on our podcast and, and listen to uh, last week's study. But it shows how he wants to be in relationship with us, how he wants to be involved in our lives on an up-close and personal basis. God never wants to be a generic God. And that's the thing that I want us to grab, and we really talked about that a lot last week. He wants to be that up-close and personal God that has a purpose for our life. God wants us to know him by name. And so in knowing these names, we see this about him and we begin to understand this 
about him. And it's important to realize that when God reveals a name of himself, it's almost like he is revealing another character, another aspect of his character in a specific situation. Every time you see a name of God, a new name revealed, like we're going to see today, it's because he's trying to show his people, those who follow him, that there is something new, something fresh about him, something that he can do. It's always at a transition point that God reveals a new name, a new aspect or character of himself. And so throughout the life of Moses, God was meeting needs all the time in various ways, and God would reveal um, himself to Moses by adding names um, by adding to the list of names like we're going to see in today's passage. And so Yahweh is the main name, but it becomes a compound name in the next couple of names that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. And so let me give you a little bit of the backstory. You may know this, so this is just simply review for some of you. But Moses leads the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage, and he's heading them toward the promised land of their own. But at the very start of their journey, the Hebrews face a huge challenge. They come to the Red Sea, and they camp there overnight, and here's the problem. Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, decides, what have we done? We need to go get the Hebrews back. We have released our biggest slave force. And so it says in Scripture that Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. They let all these slaves get away. Pharaoh harnessed his chariots. He called up his troops, and the Egyptians chased after them with all the forces of the Pharaoh's army, all his horses, all his chariots, charioteers, and troops. So get this in mind. Now, the, the people of God, the Hebrews, have made it all the way to the Red Sea. They're on the shore of the this, of this sea, and they look behind, and here is Pharaoh and all of his army chasing after them. This is not a good scene. It says the Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore. And so what happens is the Hebrews freak out. Would you freak out? I would. The people of Israel, it says in Scripture in Exodus 14, they looked up, they panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness, in the desert? What have you done to us? But Moses told the people something real important. Look what he says. Don't be afraid. Just stand what still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. So, so basically, Moses is trusting Yahweh. He's trusting God. And it says that then the Lord said, in verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people to get moving. <laughs> I think it's funny. Moses says, stand still. And God says, no, get moving, right? And he says, get moving. Tell the people, get moving. Pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea, divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots, his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory, notice this, and know that I am the, what's the word? Lord. Guess what name that is? Yahweh. He's saying they're going to know that I'm Yahweh. They're going to know, all the world's going to know that I am up close and personal taking care of my people. And no one can come against my people if I'm taking care of them. That's what he's saying here. And we know what happens, right? Moses, verse 21, raised his hand over the sea. The Lord opened a path through the water with a strong wind. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Isn't that amazing? With walls of water on each side. 
Then all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers chased them into the middle of the sea. So here they come. Hey, they can go through it, so we're going to go through it too. And here they come. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again. So Moses um, raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back to its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the waters returned and covered all of the chariots and all of the charioteers. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe. They put their faith in, what's that word? Lord, guess what name that is? Yahweh, and in his servant Moses. Now, I didn't include the verse, but there's one little verse that says, no one survived. When, when the waters came crashing back in on Pharaoh's army, no one survived. And so God's people, they're standing. Just get this picture. They're standing on the other shore after crossing on dry ground, the sea. They're standing on the other shore, and they're seeing bodies float. The bodies of soldiers of Pharaoh's army. And no one survived. And they were in awe of Yahweh. And they put their faith in Yahweh. It's the first time that it's mentioned that the people put their faith in the Lord. So what do they do? Well, that was Exodus 14, Exodus 15, just the next chapter over. They, they start worshiping. They did what we just did earlier. They... they they enjoy worship together. Look what it says. Then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, to Yahweh. I will sing to the Lord, Yahweh, for he has triumphed glor gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. They just saw that. The Lord, Yahweh, is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him. Look at this one. Yahweh is his name. Wow. In the same chapter... After worshiping together, having this awesome worship, worship experience, Moses' sister Miriam actually wrote another song. You find it at the end of, of uh, really toward the end there of Exodus 15 in this worship experience. In this same chapter, right at the end, it says, then, then Moses led the people away from the Red Sea. So he gets them going again. And they moved out into the desert of Shur. Bible college, we used to say, are you sure? Yeah, we're sure. Okay, some of you will get that when we catch on here. Then they traveled in this desert for three days without finding what? Any water. Hmm. Now, we probably don't even really relate to this, of being without water. Unless, of course, you're living in my home this weekend. If you haven't heard yet, we have a water leak in the wall of our house, and our plumber can't get there until tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon. So since Friday, we've had this leak, and I've kind of isolated it down to realize that it is a supply line. It's clean water, but it has come into our living room, has flooded some carpet. We've pulled back carpet, pulled back pad. We've been kind of drying it out. But I've realized that I can turn the main water valve off outside, and it stops the leak temporarily right? So this is what we do. Like this morning, we get up, turn the water on, everybody goes to the bathroom, everybody does their showers, we throw in a load of laundry and run the dishwasher all we can, all real quick, and then we shut the water back off, and now it's off as we've come to church. We've been doing that since Friday night, okay? So we've been going kind of, kind of without water. Last night, 
My wife said, Dee Dee said, it makes me want to send more money to our compassion students that live in areas without water. Because it, you know, you don't realize it. You don't realize it. Like the first night, my wife goes to bed earlier than I do, and I stay up and do some things, and I, and I came to bed, and it was in the dark, and she was already asleep, and, and, and I, you know, my routine, I brush my teeth, and that kind of stuff, and I go to bed, and I, and I walked over, you know, to the sink, and I grabbed my toothbrush, put it under the faucet, and I realized, oh, man, it turned the water off, right? So then I thought, okay, where do I have water? Oh, I got water in my hydro flask down on the table. So I go downstairs to the table, and I get my hydro flask, and I come back upstairs, and I, and I pour water on my toothbrush, and then I put the toothpaste on, and then I brush my teeth, then I rinse with the hydro flask, then I rinse my toothbrush. It's just a pain. We, we don't understand the convenience. We really take it for granted, the convenience we have of water. So then the next morning, I go to refill my hydro flask, and I forget that the water's off, and I stick it in the refrigerator thing, and Oh, yeah. You know, it's like your brain kind of catches up to the whole scenario, right? And if you've been without it for any period of time, you know what I'm talking about. In their situation, they were without water for their entire group. If you want to know how big their group is, the history tells us that it was 600,000 men, not counting women and children. So if you add in women and children, you could be talking a million people without water, for three days. Hmm. Kind of gives you the idea. You know, think about the, you know, they had this worship experience. And they're worshiping God. We have faith in Yahweh. Yeah, on that first day of traveling. Woo, here we go. We're with Yahweh. Second day, man, I'm getting a little thirsty here. Got some water? No, I don't have any. Well, how about you? No, I don't have any. Third day, we're like, oh, right? That's us. We can relate to these people. Third day, it's like, come on, where's the provision? You said you were with us. You said you would take care of us. Look what it says here. When they came to the oasis of Mara, and it's an oasis, they're thinking this is water, this is some body of water. Look what it says, the water was too bitter to drink. There was something wrong with the water. It was it just it was bad, couldn't drink it. It wasn't just bad tasting, it was bad for you. Probably stagnant kind of murky water that you just don't want to drink, right? It's going to make some problems for you intestinally if you, if you drink this water. You know what I'm talking about. And so they don't drink it. And look what the people do. They start complaining, and they turn against Moses. What are we going to drink? They demanded. Isn't it interesting how it doesn't take very long to forget what God has done? I mean, come on. Let's just do the math here. Think about this. They've been set free from 400 years of slavery. They had seen 10 plagues leveled against Pharaoh and Egypt. They, they had seen 100% of Pharaoh's army swallowed up in the sea. But it takes three days for them to forget what God can do. All it took was one crisis. Now, before you start shaking your finger at them and thinking, man, these people are just pretty lame, we probably should turn that finger back and start pointing at us, right? Me. Because I have a tendency, you have a tendency to do the same thing. We go through a crisis. I mean, I'll be honest with you. When our water went out, 
I was saying, God, I'm preaching about how you supply water. And yet, now we have no water at our house. What is up with that? That's serious. That's what I said to God. Now, I don't know what he said back to me because I didn't get any answer from that. I probably wouldn't want to hear his answer from that. But that's the way we are, right? I just had water yesterday, but today I don't have any water, and now I'm complaining about it. All it took, how easily they forget, one crisis. So Moses, look what it says in verse 25. I love this. Moses cried out to the Lord for help. It's an interesting word to use there, cried out. It's, it's, not a, it's not a word of praying. It's more a word of complaining. You know, God... <laughs> You told me you would be with me when I lead these people. And now, they're complaining to me, and I'm complaining to you. What are you going to do about this? Look what it says. And the Lord showed him a piece of wood. (laughs) I I don't know, but when I read stories like this, I just get a chuckle because I'm thinking, wow, a piece of wood. How's that going to help, right? In my mind, that's what I'm thinking. But in Moses' mind, if you know the story, you know how God used his staff. And he just used his staff to part the Red Sea. So wood is pretty important to Moses. And look at what it says. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. So Yahweh, once again, proves himself to be a God who comes through. Look what it says. Verse 25. It was there at Marah. The Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. We're going to come back to this in just a minute, but don't miss this. God was not on being tested here. was the people being tested. His followers were being tested. Look what it says. The Lord said... If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his degrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians. For I am, and I want you to circle these next words, the Lord who heals you. The Lord who heals you. Don't miss this. This is a people following God. And God says, Here's what I want you to do to stay in connection with me. I want you to follow me. I want you to listen. I want you to do what is right in my sight. I want you to obey my commands. I want you to do all of these things so that you can experience all that I have for you. So it was a conditional promise. God was saying, I promise to give you everything you need in life, but you've got to follow me in this way. The original Hebrew, this phrase, the Lord who heals you, it's a particular name of God. It's a compound name, Yahweh Rapha. Yahweh Rapha. It's an interesting name. Rapha means to heal or restore. You can fill that in. I think it's a fill-in on your outline. To, to heal or restore. It's interesting that Rapha is used 60 times in the Old Testament, and it always has the same meaning, to heal or restore, not only in a physical sense, but also emotionally and spiritually and relationally. Basically, it's saying that God can give us wholeness in all areas of our life. Yahweh Rapha. And because we live in a broken world, a, sin that, a world that is broken, rather, by sin, 
all of us need healing. We know that to be true. Physical sickness and disease is rampant in our world, affecting people of all communities and all walks of life. Without question, there are so many people that we know of that need physical healing. And yet, so many people need healing that is greater than just physical. We know this to be true, too. I mean, we experience brokenness in in so many areas of our life. So we need emotional healing in our souls. We need healing in our relationships. We need spiritual healing in our hearts and our lives. Because of sin, we live in a broken world, and we are in need of healing what's broken in our bodies and in our emotions and in our relationships and in our heart. We need to be healed, not only from yesterday's pain, but from the pain of today and even pain that's coming in the future. We know this. And we realize that God is the only one who can heal us. Yahweh Rapha. He's the only one who can heal us. He's the only one who can bring wholeness and restoration where there is brokenness and separation. He's the only God who can heal the sickness of our lives and our hearts and our souls. He's the only one. And just as it was with Yahweh in Moses' time, we see this demonstrated in Jesus' life and ministry when he came in the New Testament. I mean, look what Jesus says about why he came. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to, what's that word? Heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to recovery to sight of the blind, to, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's all about wholeness. It's all about healing. It's all about restoration. And we're told in Matthew chapter 4 that, that news about Jesus spread and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, look what it says, he healed them all. All. Wow. The apostle Peter tells us, That Christ carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we would stop living for sin and start living for what is right. And you are healed because of his wounds. Hmm. And then we see it working in the church. In the body of Christ, the, the apostle James, look what he writes. He says, are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. So I guess my question to you, to us, is what in your life, what in my life, is bitter? What in your life is undrinkable? Not working. See, I, this, is, this is the statement I want you to get today. I may be facing bitterness, but God can bring healing. He can bring healing. I believe that. He is the God of miracles. He is the healer. We've sang all these songs. Do we believe them? Out of crisis in a desert comes the name Yahweh Rapha. Do you see the situation there? Out of this crisis comes the name Yahweh Rapha. Friends, I got to tell you, when you face crisis, when you face tough times, something that I've learned is that God has a purpose. (laughs) 
God has a reason for taking you through crisis. I've heard it said once before that God has a purpose for my pain. For your pain, for what we go through, there is a purpose. There's a scripture that has always spoken to me. In any time that I have been through tough situations, I, I turn back to this scripture. So I, I've, I've used it, honestly, several times in my life as a, as a go-to passage. And I, I love the Apostle Paul and reading anything about the Apostle Paul and what he went through. And if you know his story, his story is tough. I mean, you need to know that, that there were times when the Apostle Paul wondered if he was going to live through this situation. I mean, I mean they, they tried to stone him to death. They tried to kill him. They tried all kinds of things. He faced prison. He faced shipwreck. He was bit by a poisonous snake. I mean, all of, all of these kinds of things take place in Paul's life, and yet God is always there, always coming through for him, always healer, always Raphah. We find this passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul is just kind of not venting, not in a negative way, just letting, letting other followers of Jesus know that this is the way life can be sometimes. I hope you realize that when you become a follower of Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a life of ease. Jesus never promised that. He never promised that he would take you out of crisis. He promised that he would go through crisis with you. And this is what Paul tells us. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 1. We think you ought to know, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through. We were overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. Think about that for just a minute. Ever felt like, you've, like you're overwhelmed? Like, like the, the situation, the, the circumstances you're facing, the details, the relationships, whatever, you're, it's, it's just overwhelming you. Like you, you wonder, it, it, it's too much for me to handle. It's, it's more than I can endure. This is Paul. Look what he says. He says, we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been at that point. I mean, there was one time when I was on a missions trip, and we were shot at, and we heard bullets zinging past us. I'll talk to you later about that if you want to know the info on that one. Okay, But that was like as close as I could come to possibly facing death. So I, I don't know what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, I'm so overwhelmed. We wondered if we were going to get through this, if we were going to live to see another day. We thought we were going to die. Look what he says, but as a result, as a result of what? As a result of going through this crisis, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God. Now, I was going to stop it right there. Yesterday, I was going to stop the passage. I had ended the passage there just, just to kind of make the point. But yesterday, God started talking to me about the last couple of words. I missed something until yesterday. I want you to catch this. As a result, we stop relying on ourselves and learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. Do you see it? Do you see what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> even if you face the worst, even if you die, Paul's saying, even if you face death, we rely on a God who raises the dead. Even if it gets to be the worst that you've ever faced in life, God 
is able. Wow. Friends, this is for us to know that God is able, that we can rely on him instead of trusting ourselves, instead of trying to figure it out on our own, instead of worrying, instead of trying, 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 and striving and striving, we can say, God, I rely on you, I trust in you, even if I face death, you are still the God who can raise the dead. You are still in control. I can trust that you are there and ready to take care of me. See, the process, for God, the process is more important than the result. I mean, what was the goal of taking the Hebrews? And we step back to Moses and the people. What was the goal? Was the goal to take the Hebrews from Egypt to the promised land? No. God's goal was the journey. Why? Because just like Paul, he wanted them to start relying on him and not themselves. The journey. Friends, that's why God never removes us from crisis. He lets us go through crisis. Because he wants us to rely on him. He wants us to come to a point of trusting him no matter what. The desert isn't the easiest place to be, and we know that. Nobody wants to go through the desert. But often, the only way to get from where you are to where God wants you to be is to go through the desert. So read it with me again. The Lord said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands, keeping all his degrees, decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians. Friends, don't miss this. He's not saying you're always going to have perfect health. It's always going to be, you know, good. You're never going to face sickness. You're never going to face illness. You'll never get sick. You'll never die. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying nothing ever bad will happen to you. No, God is promising. Get this. God is promising the absence. Look at the specific words. The absence of what came upon the Egyptians. So, so think about the situation here. The water is undrinkable. Remember, that's in our context, in our account. The water is undrinkable. Sound familiar? It's just like it was for the Egyptians in the first of the plagues. Remember the story? Where God turned the water, the Nile River, into blood. Look what it says in Exodus 7. The water became so foul that the Egyptians couldn't drink it everywhere throughout the land of Egypt. Undrinkable. Follow this here. The Lord is saying, remember to his people, if you, this, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians. You see what he's doing? He's saying, you're my people. Don't be like the Egyptians who did not believe in me. Don't be like them. Instead, follow me. Do what I say, and you will experience all that I have for you. Don't be like the Egyptians. And what does God have for his people? I mean, think about it. They came across this body of water in Mara that was bitter. They couldn't drink it. It was stagnant, whatever it was. They couldn't drink it. 
What did he have for them? Did he have for them this, only, this, this body of water only? Is this all that God had for them? No. If they'd have been patient, if they would have trusted, look what God had for them. After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there beside the water. Now for us, we just read that and go, oh, that was cool, 12 springs. I want you to think about what a spring is versus a stagnant body of water. A spring is a fresh source of water. It is a never-ending source of water. But even beyond that, take a look at the numbers. If you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, you need to know that in just a few more chapters in the book of Exodus, guess what? Moses gets smart and he starts dividing up the people into tribes. It's according to their family lines. It's really according to the brothers, the sons of of Jacob. And he starts dividing them up. And guess how many tribes they're divided up into? Twelve. And they decide that, you know, we need to have a body that's kind of like a government. And so guess how many leaders they pull in? Seventy. So I think God is trying to tell the people, I got you. I got you covered. Don't freak out when you come across a body of water that you can't drink. That's that's nothing to me. I'm not just going to give you one little body of water. I got 12 fresh flowing, never ending springs in store for you. Trust me. I think that's for you. For me today, trust him. He is Yahweh Rapha. I don't think there's any coincidence. I'm not saying that every tribe's going to get a spring and every leader's going to get a tree. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that every detail and everything is going to come together for you and it's going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is God knows what he's doing. And we are called to trust him. That's what the journey is all about. That's why you're going through the crisis that you're going through. That's why you're facing the things that you're facing right now in your life is because God is trying to work in your heart because he knows what he's doing and he's calling us to trust him. Basically, God says to his people, and I think he says this to us today, I know how to take care of you. My intent, God says my intent, is to give you a never-ending source. That's what he wants to do. Would you bow your heads with me?